Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rare Bird Radio. This is Karen Stefano, author of the memoir, What a Body Remembers. And today I am lucky to be in conversation with Carla Samet, the author of the memoir in essays, One Day on the Gold Line. How are you, Carla? I'm great. It's so good to be here with you. Uh, and you as well. Uh, this is this is a great uh, collection of essays. And when I picked up the book, I noticed that you got a beautiful blurb from Sue William Silverman, who coincidentally was just on this podcast. She was the last person I had a conversation with. And oh. I, yeah, I just had to share that with you because I just love our small, crazy, little literary world and our sense of community. And uh, just seeing stuff like that makes me feel connected, you know? Yeah, she's absolutely amazing. She's so talented. And she's such a strong literary citizen, too. A big yeah. supporter of, of uh, other authors. Yeah, she, yes. she really is. And her... Uh, her writing is is fantastic. Um, Sue's blurb for your book, One Day on the Gold Line, talks about uh, otherness and how you address otherness in this book. And how do you, as its creator, feel that this book addresses the sense of otherness. Mm. So um, my memoir is um, really, it's about the difficult journey to having a son and the myths that I believed about how easy it would be to create a family that was a safe sanctuary. And I thought that this blend of family, um, which could be considered the other, though I think families are more and more other families. Um, I thought at the time that my son having a lesbian mom, being African-American and Jewish and being part of a blended family or even with a single mom would make life richer for him. The reality was much harder. Um, so part of why I wrote the book is I wanted to see a family that reflected our family, um, that, that was such a blend of um, identities and cultures um, and even language. Um, and... Um, there's so many pieces of it where you feel like the other also. Um, so when you're struggling with something, say when I was, when my son um, began using drugs um, and became really, really fell in, became deeply st struggling with addiction. Um, I, there's a sense of otherness there too. Before you start talking, telling your story and talking to other people, you start to feel, you, you feel as if you're the only one. Um, and I think that was a big part of my desire to write this is to have, to put out that lifeline that I found when I was looking for, for any kind of book or story that made me feel more connected in the world, that made me feel like I wasn't the only one out there. Yeah, it, it's interesting uh, to hear your words, uh, the myths of how easy it is to make a family. And it truly is a myth. I remember um, in the early 2000s, uh, I, my then husband and I were trying to get pregnant. And um, 
all my friends, it seemed like it was just like, okay, we're going to try to get pregnant. And then boom, they're pregnant. So that's what I expected. And as it turned out, you know, I, I never got pregnant. And mm. then I kind of forgot about it for a while. And then, you know, I went through my 40s and it was kind of like kids. Nah. And then as I've gotten older, it's become just a huge regret. Um, but as I think, you know, I, I recently got married again. And um, so I got an automatic family of um, nice. three beautiful teenagers. That's and yeah, such a such a blessing. But but it is a myth um, of of you know, of, of being easy, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a myth of being easy, both in terms of, it's not always that you just check in and you're able to have a child. And similarly, when you're struggling, like I had multiple miscarriages um, and I was pregnant many times. And the the stock thing that people would sometimes say without, uh, you know, not meaning to be unkind with, why don't you just adopt as if you could just go down to the store and pick up a baby. Um, And, You know, I think the other part of the myth was that um, having this family that I think both my son and I kind of aspired to, this idea of happy chaos, you know, a couple dogs, several kids, (laughs) we had a leopard gecko named Michael Jordan, and that that it would just be, we'd all get along. It's not so much that, um, you know, I believe the Brady Bunch, (laughs) but but that um, this blending would work, you know, and... Mm -hmm. And it was when I first, um, when I met my stepdaughter's mom and, and we first got together and the family was first blending, I was very kind of almost arrogant. Like, I don't know why people say this is so hard because mm-hmm. I instantly bonded with my stepdaughter and we became very close and my son and uh, his stepsister became close and the complications didn't start until further down the line. Um, but it definitely... Um, I think part of the myth for me also was um, the idea that you can protect, you can create this safe haven, this safe kind of sanctuary for your family. And, um, you know, there are often many dangers from without and within that you don't really plan for, you're not really aware of, um, you know, being other. So being biracial for my my son, it, it ended up being so much harder having a queer mom and um, ha- having several moms, the blended family being biracial, he's black and Jewish. Um, it, he kind of grew up during the, the anti-gay culture wars. And it was brutal because first he couldn't wait to tell everyone, oh, I'm going to have a new sister and I'm going to have two moms. And, and then he was told sort of, don't take that to school or you're not really black, look in the mirror. Um, and I think for a while he really longed for a much more conventional family to not be the other. So what, what I, I mean, I hesitate to use this as a, like the Cosby, right? Because that's not a very good, (laughs) (laughs) but, but at the time, I think he really, he hit, he hit the wall where he was like, no, I just want to be in a family with a, a straight intact middle-class African-American family, be a good athlete, be, you know, a fine student. And, um, and my son was so many things, you know, he dreamy intellectual school wasn't always easy for him. Um, he, um, he really, I, I think now it, there's much more room as you get older. Um, the world changed. It was more accepting of alternative families. And, and, um, so that as he got older, it became easier. He fell in with a group of really mixed, uh, ethnic group of kids in, in middle school. The, the Arabic 
um, student gave the Jewish kids a Valentine that said, I love Jew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then by high school, he was really saying, you know, it's cool, mom. It's cool having a lesbian mom. Why wouldn't I want that? We can look at girls together. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And he was much more outspoken about, um, you know, posting things on Facebook. You know, if you're a homophobe, put a big H on your forehead and tell people. And Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I love it. But yeah, there is, there is the journey part, right? You know, where he, he had to find his way, you know. Definitely, yeah. definitely. I think I really felt like a lot of, much more hopeful after he had, he had a bar mitzvah and it was just, um, he read poetry. The majority of the congregation that day were um, Latino and African American and his, his, fellow students were saying, I want a bro mitzvah. And uh, (laughs) he had a really bizarre Torah portion as they often are about something, what to do if your wife is unfaithful. And so the rabbi distilled that to trust and vulnerability. And he wrote a sermon about Bernie Madoff and teen prostitutes. (laughs) Um, um, And one of his friends, um, father who was a editor for for the La Pidion went and wrote an article about the bar mitzvah being the real LA and translated his poetry to Spanish and I remember watching him there in front of all the, he was you know he's 13 it's a bar mitzvah thinking you know he's going to be okay um, but there were there have been many more challenges along the way yeah yeah um I I want if, if we can um to talk a little bit about the title essay, One Day on the Gold Line. And I confess that I'd heard a little bit of buzz about this essay before I actually read it. And with that buzz, I thought, you know, what the fucking fuck? How does that even happen? And now I've obviously read the essay. Um, But if you would, I'd like you to just tell our listeners, um, just give them a little hook about the factual events giving rise to this essay without, I mean, you know, no spoilers, but just just the factual setup of what happened to you. Well, I mean, I was going along being very concerned as my, my young black son got a little older and taller about um, risks to him b- because of his color um, and, you know, seeing statistics about one in three um, black men serving time being incarcerated um and and i was actually going into um juvenile detention and seeing a room full of kids young black and brown kids that looked just like him and i was just seeing people start to treat him differently as he got a little bit older he still didn't even have hair under his arms um and what i feared was all the more complex after i experienced my own assault by law enforcement by a la county sheriff's deputy um, I don't know how much detail do you want me to go into. For, no, um, I, uh, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's enough. I mean, you were you were the victim of a brutal assault um, by L.A. County sheriff's deputies for the mildest of infractions, and then yeah, in the essay you do question if this happens to me, what would they do to my black teenage? son. And I have to say, I mean, I love the essay. It was beautiful. It gave me chills. In parts, of course, it was tough to read the description of the physical trauma you endured. Um, 
And it's, you know, it's really interesting. As, as I think you know, um, I, spent, I spent the first eight years of my legal career uh, as a criminal defense lawyer and uh, doing mostly public defense work in the uh, uh, in the instances where the public defender's office had a conflict of interest and then they'd farm out cases to private lawyers. Right. And so you talk about how you got cited for resisting arrest. And so in California lingo, that's penal code section 148. And you never got charged with that. But it really stuck with me because I think that the police overuse that charge. Um, and I know um, that it comes with huge baggage. Like if you hypothetically had been convicted of resisting arrest and, you know, there are various forms of that. But I mean, that stays with you. And when a cop pulls you over, say, you know, because you were speeding, um, they run your record and then it comes up um, resisting arrest. And then all of a sudden you get you know, a person gets treated a hell of a lot differently after that. So it's just, it's just kind of terrifying. Yeah, it was a really terrifying experience. And the slight infraction was that I couldn't immediately find my actual Metro pass. I had the receipt, I had my identification, and I got pulled off and searched, and then things went from bad to worse. And, um, you know, as I spoke with people after the experience um, and we were talking to um, civil rights attorneys um, and I was told that if they break something which in this case was my nose if something happens they're liable they will escalate the charges Um, as it turns out in my case no charges were ever filed for anything but um, but that's usually what happens is um, that they'll, they'll put on some kind of charge and yeah it just yeah. it definitely gave me a different point of view too because in another life I worked for the Seattle City Attorney's Office um so sort of the other side <laughs> yeah um, and only handling domestic violence cases um so we worked with some of us were attorneys some weren't but we worked with the victims of domestic violence and prepared the cases and negotiated the cases and um that gave me the perspective which um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about in your book, of being the person who's on the stand, of being the the victim on the stand. And I I was really clear that that was not an easy place to be. I I did not want um, to end up there. So um, I was glad when we were able to settle the case. Yeah. Um, yeah, Something that really jumped out at me uh, for obvious reasons is uh, you talk about in that essay, uh, about your work in the Seattle City, Tur- City Attorney's Office, and uh, you say, and I don't think this is a, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but that you had firsthand knowledge of the experience of victims without power in the criminal justice system. And as you know from reading my book, um, I can so, so relate to that. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by your book. I love so many things about it, but I was really struck by um, the kind of circle, the difference in how you were dealt with when this happened to you um, and when you had to go on the stand and the level of disempowerment in that case to when you came back to get more information so many years later and how you were treated, which was so much more humanely. And I, I remember also paraphrasing something like, sorry, we got it wrong the last time. Um, something to that effect that um, the 
was it the city attorney speaking to you? Was yeah, kind of the chief deputy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I mean, I think um, I'm going to just, if I can, just interject, jump in. I think one of the things that was really interesting, if we look at both our books, was how you deal with trauma and how you reconstruct stories, how you write trauma, how you remember trauma. <laughs> um, and, you know, I find when I'm teaching and also when I'm doing my own writing that I often have to come at it in some kind of alternative form initially because memory is so fragmented and fragile with trauma that you don't necessarily, you might remember like really distinct details. And you were so good in your book in capturing some of those details or footsteps or, you know, things that, that, that you remember that, that, and that pop up out of nowhere. Um, but when you try to remember chronologically, this happened, this happened, this happened, it doesn't necessarily um, come out that way. Um, so I'm really interested in um, whether you started out uh with your book, um, did you know the form that you were going to write it in? Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't care what I write. I mean, I never, I never really know the form um, or how I'm going to move back and forth through time or, or anything until I start writing and, um, uh, you know, writing about trauma is you know it writing alone is difficult writing about trauma as you well know is a whole other ballpark and um you know i just in, in you know in the first draft i basically started out with the assault scene and then the interaction with the cops after that and then trial and whatnot and so I kind of got that down and, uh, it, you know, in really, really, really early drafts and uh, fact-checked myself as much as possible um, and using my journal from the time, which alone was just a huge shock to open up my journal from that time and see two days after the assault, me saying, I'm feeling so depressed. I don't know what's going on. That and, you know, was so powerful. No, yeah. no mention of the assault. Yeah. It's like, Jesus Christ, Karen, what is, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's going on in your head that you're, you're pressing this down? And that's a lot of what the book is about, how I dealt uh, so poorly with uh, trauma. And, I, you know, and there, there's no handbook, you know, there's no, there's no guide, you know, how to manage and recover from your traumatic experience. At least there's no guide that I'm aware of. Right. And everybody just kind of has to fumble their own way through it. And uh, and then when you're trying to put that on the page, there's a lot of fumbling that goes on then, too. Yeah. I mean, I what worked really well for me in your book was the variation um, in, in the, the whole way it was structured. So the, the way you handled time and the variation in the size of the chapters, like there were some that were just very short, mm -hmm. um, and powerful and really, really just almost very lyrical and poetic in some parts. Um, and I feel like it, it really, I was able to really re-experience some of that loss of memory and recapturing of memory due to trauma. Um, 
I found with my book when I was writing, um, there were times where there were pieces that I, I was having trouble going back to or capturing. And there was one point where I told someone, you know, I feel like I really need to go back to the essay I was writing before I was assaulted by the sheriff's deputies that was called moving south. And it was more about what happened to my black son as he got older. And I just couldn't seem to sit down and write it. And, and this other writer said, you know, write it as a list. And, um, and that worked really well. Um, so I wrote it as a list and it ended up being kind of a list essay. I often will write something in alternative form and then it may turn around and, and be rewritten in more conventional form. But in this case, I left it in the list form. And I did this with a couple essays, um, that are part of this memoir and essays that the linked essays, um, they weren't, you know, a couple were in, um, second person, um, there's one that's kind of a riff on the classic what to expect when you're expecting. Um, because in dealing with a lot of the diff- the trauma with addiction, um, it was really important to also see the humor and the irony and that kind of, um, that's what that's about. Um, so, you know, I, I think, yeah, I, I guess I, I wanted to ask you in terms of trauma also when you went to, um, what was your experience writing versus editing when you had, did you ever find that you had to go back into some places um, that were a little bit dark and difficult? Well, ab- absolutely. Um, uh, so and it's funny because I just wrote, I just wrote an article for Writer's Digest about writing about trauma. So um, I've kind of thought this through for purposes of, of that piece. And it was my experience that the first draft was really, really painful. And I just kind of want to, you know, I'd write for a few hours and then I'd kind of curl up into a fetal ball mm. afterwards because I was, it was so spent. And it's like, and it's interesting because for the assault scene, well, duh, of course that's going to happen. You know, you're, you're vividing, vividly recollecting an extremely traumatic experience. But then it was surprising to me that as pain, equally painful to the first drafts of the assault scene were the drafts of the jury trial when I was mm-hmm. testifying and I was getting pummeled. And um, so that was just, that was really surprising that that was so triggering. And, you know, that told me a, a lot. But then and tell me if you, what your experiences were too. But then as I would go back and edit and edit and edit, and that's how I write. I just do the Anne Lamott shitty first draft. Yeah, yeah. And then I go back and back and back and back and edit mm-hmm. over and over again. And as I was in the editing process, I got distance and I was just being a writer and saying, Hey, does this scene work on the page? Is the dialogue good? Do you have enough beats of movement in between? Mm-hmm. And um, and then it was just like I was writing about someone else, and it was it was much less painful. Was was that your experience? You know, it depended. I I did so many drafts, but as I was getting closer to publication, um, I did find myself zooming in and out, kind of like what you're describing. But there were times where I had to really get up close again and, you know, really be in scene um, to recall. So um, the, this wonderful editor I was working with really wanted me, wanted 
more the cover story I'd written for the Pasadena Weekly one day on the gold line was was written for, you know, a, a print uh, newspaper uh, weekly. And so it was written in the present and very terse um, in the moment kind of writing. And so she wanted more reflection, more, how did you feel? What did you think when this was happening? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that was so hard. I knew I wanted this to be the best book I could do uh, at, at the time. And I, and so I, I really did let her push me, but it was difficult. I, um, you know, I do things like sometimes when I'm writing really dark scenes and I'm trying to go in with uh, on the first drafts, I'll also listen to really difficult music. Um, You know, so I'll do different things to put myself in that place. I feel like during the first draft of some of these essays, I was watching, maybe even when I was writing one day on the gold line, I was, watching Breaking Bad and <laughs> not, not not while I was writing it, but, you know, and probably listening to Leonard Cohen or I don't know, like some, I want it darker. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I actually found it really, this last draft was really, it was difficult to keep reading over some of the material. I, I was really ready to separate. I was ready to put that book out in the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's why when people, I don't know if you get that question, Karen, uh, oh, is that, was that therapeutic for you writing that book? <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> no, actually, I needed more therapy after I wrote it. Right, right. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's another, that's another myth. That it's writing such a about, myth. Yeah, writing about your trauma is um, uh, cathartic somehow maybe it is like if you're writing honestly to yourself in your mm-hmm. personal journal or something I know um uh, I've kept a journal a large part of my life and mm-hmm. it's helped me have some big epiphanies about whatever it is I'm I'm going through but um but yeah that's it it's interesting because as a writer okay writing's hard and so you have to keep your butt in the chair and you have to be self-disciplined. And some days the words come, some days the words don't want to come. And uh, so you have to push yourself. But when you're writing about trauma, it's it gets a little bit more tricky because the question becomes, okay, am I being uh, good and self-disciplined here or am I pushing myself to the brink of emotional disaster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I remember someone telling me when I was saying I was going back in there, I'm going back to, you know, <laughs> going back in. yeah, going in um, that like really telling me like, be kind to yourself. Remember, you know, self care, it's much darker in there than you may imagine. <laughs> you know, um, I think it was actually maybe the, you know, I originally wrote a draft of this for my um, MFA thesis, and it may have been that, um, author who was telling me that but yeah I mean I think it is really a delicate balance um at one point I had to the the editor said to me well can you watch the video that they shot after your nose was broken can you watch that video again the interviews to get more details and (laughs) it's like oh my god I don't know if I can watch it again but my wife my wife was willing to watch it um, but in going back to get more information and the video, I had to go back to my former attorney and he was really excited as civil rights attorneys will be when they have a good case. That's really horrible. It's also horrifying, but they know that 
you know, people can't deny what happened here and showed mm -hmm. me um, this brutal, brutal assault of a young black man in, in, in Altadena by the Pasadena Police Department that happened like uh, over a year ago. Um, and, and I really felt re-traumatized by watching it, not yeah. just thinking about my own experience, but what could possibly happen to my son. Right. It, yeah, that's interesting because um, in obviously in I'm reading the essay one day on the gold line and uh, I read, I'm, you know, I'm reading of your assault and your questions about, you know, if this happens to me, what's going to happen to my black teenage son when he has the audacity to, you know, walk down the street. And, um, uh, and I, it immediately brought me to the movie Fruitvale Station. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it just, I just felt such a twinge of satisfaction when kind of at the close of that essay, you mentioned that movie. And, yes. Um, and anybody who's listening, if you have not watched that movie, you have to watch it. It's it's uh, it's a, it's incredibly sad, but it's uh, uh, incredibly well drawn. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 My my son just grabbed my hand in the middle of the movie and held held it really tight till the end. And then we both turned to each other. And he said, Mom, I was thinking about what happened to you. And I said, uh, son, I was thinking about what might ha what could happen to you. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to ask you something else. And um, you and I both wrote books where we're not really pulling any punches. We really expose our innards. And uh, and in a lot of places, you don't come off so great. And in a lot of places, I don't come off so mm -hmm. great. Did you, I mean, now that your book is out there in the world, do you feel any kind of sense of, um, not regret, but uh, self-consciousness uh, that you've uh, exposed yourself so thoroughly? I mean, I think a, a thorough self-exposure is what has to happen or great memoir, but I mean, how do you, how do you yeah. feel now that your innards are out there for a moment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I comment, mean, and comment upon. Right, right. Um, you know, it's interesting because I will sometimes bring up, there's an essay in there, hashtag cray cray mom, where I really hit the bottom in terms of insane behavior by mother of a teenage addict, um, you know, where you're looking at me and saying, okay, this is the one who really needs help. You know, <laughs> she is out of her mind, you know, and I was out of my mind hearing on a regular basis, my son might die. Um, so I really felt like it was important. I'm going to answer to, I felt like it was really important to write with agency about my part. Like I was writing about other people too. Um, and it was really important for me to be as honest as I possibly could about telling my story, telling my truest truth. Like what, what are, you know, what are those parts of me where, you know, there is shame, you know, and really delving into that shame and being able to write about it. And I think I have published a couple other essays, one in particular that was part of this book called Letting Go, where there was a lot I was pretty naked on the page. And I remember thinking after this, um, you know, nothing else will be as hard. But um, there is still a, a certain amount of vulnerability that notches up a bit when it comes out as a book. And you do think and you wait for people to comment who don't know you, or maybe they do know you. Um, and 
you know, form an opinion about you as a person, you know, so you're not just waiting to hear what they'll say about you as a writer. People will often write in their reviews as much about the writing as much about the per what, you know, the story that's being told. Um, So I, but I don't know, I feel good about having it out in the world, but there is a certain, um, it's not a giddiness, but a certain nervousness about, um, yeah, I'm pretty naked. And, you know, it probably helps that I'm 60. I just turned 60, so I'm kind of like, you know, what are they going to do to me? (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like it's the same as what somebody told me before I went up to do stand-up. Like, you need to just think I could die now, you know, and sort of it won't be that bad. But I wanted to ask you, Karen, what what about you? I mean, how did you feel about that? Well, um, you know, it's interesting um, as uh, I wrapped up the editorial process with rare bird you know like you know there's the there's the back and forth and you're just kind of getting it done and 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 everything and then we did the final edits and it's like okay it's go time and i had this sudden uh i don't know fear apprehension gut check time of oh shit do i really want to put this out there. And of course, you know, I'd invested years of my life in writing this mm-hmm. and um, there was, you know, there was no turning back and I'm, you know, and, if, and I have no, I have no regrets and uh, I, I'm proud of the writing. Um, I'm proud of the honesty, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because people um, who you don't know read it and, form opinions and then there's the instance of when people who you know quite well who who read yes. the book and they yes. view you totally differently and it's it's interesting um like i said earlier i uh am the proud stepmother of three beautiful teenagers now and my 18 year old stepson is uh reading the book mm. and he commented to his father the other night like oh my god i'm learning so much about karen and, <laughs> um, and i'm just like oh shit um what page is he on and so so there's that experience too yeah and um and yeah there's there's a sense of fear because you're you you've you put it all on the line uh it's your book so it's your baby and so you're going to be subject to reviews, mm-hmm. um, some of which will be uh, favorable, some of which I'm sure won't be. And then you're out, you know, you're out there for those, you know, Twitter trolls who, oh, yeah. you know, all men who uh, like to give one starred reviews to books authored by women. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, there's a lot of vulnerability in it, but um it's also empowering too, don't you think? It is. It really is. Um, in ways that I didn't anticipate. Yeah. I think both of those things are true, you know, the vulnerability and the empowering. But, um, and it just feels, yeah, it, it feels really substantial. And there is definitely a different feeling I have now that I've had sort of my big launch reading and the book is officially out in the world being sold compared to when I got 
like a pre and early shipment of books and my it was just sort of awesome, almost anticlimactic like well what's my name doing on all those books you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah. um yeah it feels really big now and um it, it was gratifying to me too and my nephew read who's in his 20s because I wasn't sure if he was my target audience he read it like in a it was a quick read for him mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. and he loved it. And that really made me happy. And I, I thought I would have like before thought to be like, should I be embarrassed about some of these things that, you know, he knows about, you know, and I, I really didn't feel that way. Cause I guess when you feel like you're telling your truest truth as one of my uh, professors used to say, um, there's something about that feeling that you do feel pretty like a clean sense of like, I'm here. I'm out there. It's okay. Right. Yeah. And, and, and also that our truth, you know, the sense that my truth, my memories are different, say, than my siblings or than other people, you know, it's, and that's okay. You know, this was what's true for me. Um, Yeah. And you and I both, and a lot of people who've written memoirs have that standard uh, kind of caveat at the beginning of the book, everything in this book is absolutely true as I remember it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, I I talked earlier about trying to fact check myself as much as I could. And I did that. But, you know, we all have to recognize uh, memories can be fallible. Very Um, much so. Yeah. So, so Carla, we're running out of time. but I wanted to ask you just one last question. Uh, you chose to structure this book, One Day on the Gold Line, as a memoir in essays rather than the quote-unquote traditional memoir structure. And why did you make that choice? Um, you know, I think it, it, the seed was planted... When, when I first was told by another author, oh, you should be writing a book-length memoir, and I was a little intimidated. I just finished an essay. <laughs> that, um, and she said, well, it can be a memoir in essays, and showed me an example. And I kind of thought about that, and then I got some encouragement from that. Like, I really liked the idea of having essays, not an essay collection, but linked essays, you know, yeah. that formed a whole story together, but they could be written in different, um, like, different way different styles um you know if i i think that if i did it again i'd love to even have like poetry interspersed i've seen now i'm seeing more and more hybrids kind of collage style memoirs where they're written uh, Alyssa washuda my body is a book of rules is a great example of that where um you know there's all different kind one of her pieces is written um i think like as a csi um incident and um you know she has an annotated list of uh, pharmaceutical. Uh, anyway, um, so I I wanted to try a little bit of that. Some of you'll, you'll see, you probably saw that some of my chapters really, I mean, some of my essays read like chapters. They're very mm-hmm. kind of oh, chronological yeah. and others are, are different. They're more alternative or thematic. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, once I had somebody make this suggestion again, it worked it ended up working very well for this book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, well, Carla, uh, we are out of time. 
I want to thank you so much for talking with me. Can you tell everyone who's listening where they can buy One Day on the Gold Line? Um, yes. Yeah, so the book is available online, of course, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, IndieBound. And you can go to my site, Carla Samith, C-A-R-L-A-S-A-M-E-T-H dot com for more information about the book, about me, about where to get it. And also your some of your local independent booksellers. I just saw that they had a, a whole bunch of Romans. So if anyone's listening who's in the Pasadena area, that's a great bookstore to go by. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Carla. Um, thank you. Everyone, Carla Samoth, author of One Day on the Gold Line. Thank you so much, Karen. It's been a pleasure.